0: Welcome to the Firearms Trainers Podcast, part of the ConcealedCarry.com network. I'm your host, Rob Beckman, and today we'll be talking about legal issues and instructors should consider. We bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. This episode is also brought to you by our friends at the FTA, the Firearms Trainers Association. Head on over to their website, ftaprotect.com, to learn more about the instructor coverage they offer and their competitive pricing. Receive a special 10% off on your policy by entering promo code FTP10 at checkout. This episode is also brought to you by Barrel Block. Listen, if you are tuning into this podcast, I assume you've heard of Barrel Block. It's the industry standard for safe, dry fire practice and classroom demos with a real firearm. Barrel Block prevents negligent discharges and eliminates training scars. I love using Barrel Block with students because it's safe and puts everyone at ease. When installed, and remember, no tools or disassembly required to use it. everyone in the room or on the firing line can see that the firearm is safe and inert. Plus, given the price, I can't imagine a firearm instructor who wouldn't have one in their classroom gear and one at home for personal dry fire use. Pick yours up today and enjoy a special offer for listeners of this podcast at blocksafety.com and use code INSTRUCTOR20 for a 20% off discount. That's B-L-O-K-safety.com. Today, we are joined by Derek DeBrasse, uh from Munition Laws Group. Welcome, Derek. How are things going for you? I'm doing well. I have to correct you, though. The last name is pronounced Debras. DeBrasse. Sorry. E is silent. It's all right. <laughs> Derek DeBrasse. Well, some of us um, may know you from your uh, munitions uh, YouTube channel, uh, but, some, but can you give the rest of our listeners out there um, a little bit of your background and... Uh, what you do in the firearm industry?
1: Sure. I'm an uh, attorney. I actually practice law. I've been practicing for 11 ish years. I lost track. <laughs> um, but I, I primarily pro- practice uh, in the area of firearms law. That's, that's what I do. Uh, I do run a YouTube channel. We have about 40,000 followers. I think uh, that's munitions group. Uh, our website's munitionsgroup.com com, And uh, we represent anybody or anything, any entity that deals with firearms or the sporting goods industry. Um, you know, publicly traded companies, manufacturers, importers, exporters, all the way down to concealed carry holders. Uh, I'm also an instructor myself and uh, various uh, weapon systems. I'm an armorer as well.
0: Well, thank you for coming on. Now, one of the things that our listeners, are instructors, And we know that, you know, there can be a lot of complexities around guns and especially laws governing those lines. And one of the things I'd like to do uh, today is talk about some of those complexities our instructors should probably be aware of uh, when they're teaching classes, not only keep themselves out of uh, some legal hot water, but also potentially their students. And the first question I got for you, uh, Derek, is I'm a concealed carry instructor. I've taught probably thousands of students over the last 10 years that I've been instructing what liability does an instructor have after we sign off on a student uh, in general terms uh, for the instructor?
1: I, you know, I think it really depends on what occurs during the class. Um, there is potential liability, of course. Um, it depends on whether or not you have a duty to that person. And if the law says that you do have a duty and you um, somehow harm that person, then there's negligence there, and you could be potentially exposed to some civil damages. Uh, but it is very fact- back based right? So if you teach a, a student something that's completely wrong and he goes out and hurts somebody, there could be some exposure there. And it also depends on you as an instructor, whether or not you have them sign any type of a release. Uh, now, generally speaking, the law does not allow you to release um, uh, gross negligence, but you, know, you can uh, release the potential harm that may ca- become a student if they're you know, out in the range and they trip, for instance, or if they're borrowing a gun and they don't properly inspect the gun and it hurts them. There's certain things that can be released in most states. But generally speaking, there is some civil liability that's there. And, of course, criminal if you do something that's dangerous on the range and, and harm mm-hmm. somebody um, if you don't have the right safety protocols in place. Um, but I'll tell you, if somebody does uh, end up using a firearm in some sort of self-defense encounter and kills the end or hurts hurt somebody and that victim, let's call them, ends up suing the instructor, uh, that could be an issue if the instructor did not follow the proper protocols. You know, if they were doing something that was completely negligent, there could be some sort of liability. I think the issue you may have with a case like that, though, is did the instructor have a duty to the person that's harmed? And that might be a stretch. It's not something I've researched uh, at length, but um, the rule of thumb basically is just, you know, follow the basic rules of gun safety. Make sure you have proper range, uh, range safety officers present. Make sure you have releases and waivers that are signed, and, and just don't play fast and loose. I've encountered a lot of instructors who do that. Um, some instructors will even just sign a certificate with not teaching the full legally required class, and that that's actually criminal, at least in the state of Ohio.
0: Yeah, in the state of Ohio, there's been people that have been brought up on charges for that. I
1: guess one, one th- charges. That's right.
0: Yeah, and I guess one thing that would um, also mitigate any uh, liability there too is if you're teaching a uh, course, a doctrine that has been well vetted. You know, NRA, USCCA, Second Amendment Foundation, something along those lines, and you can prove that's what you taught, and that obviously uh, limits your liability versus saying this is what I thought. You know, would be would would be the best thing to teach, and I'm just doing it by by my own. Uh, Mm -hmm. course curriculum. I don't have a document. I just go through the four things and I say, whatever comes to my mind, you know, each and every time I teach it, that would be more liability there.
1: Well, it'd be much more of a difficult case to defend in court. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. If you follow the NRA's guidelines or any other nationally recognized gun organization, gun training organization, uh, it's a lot easier for me as your attorney to
0: defend those actions in court. Yep. And that's what it comes down to. You want to you give your lawyer something that they can work with, not you know, with one foot in the grave already. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How about when it comes to students? Uh, bring their own guns to classes. I've had some students mm-hmm. go along and they bring, you know, the really nice, highly polished uh, Kimber 1911s. And I've had other people bring uh, guns uh, that were probably, you know, 40 years old and probably haven't been fired in 40 years. Mm-hmm.
1: So what we do when I instruct, I have actually language regarding that in my my waiver. And there's really two issues that you see on the range in classes uh, one, students bring their own guns, which they should, you should train with what your, your tool is. And number two is when students borrow weapons, either from the instructor or other students, there's liability that could be there. So you would want some sort of release that says that you're acknowledging that you're the one responsible for the safe operation of that firearm, you've inspected it, you've cleaned it, um, that the instructor has not done any of these things and that it's your responsibility. You're, you're making them assume the risk of something that's inherently dangerous, um, and in putting the onerous on the consumer, if you will, and not on yourself.
0: Mm-hmm. Yep. And I've got some of my scariest stories are the ones that students bring their guns in. And I I try to go along and make sure they're functioning, but also mm-hmm. uh, but also you don't know how well they're functioning until they actually pull the trigger down on the range. And that's where right. it's a telltale sign of how well they maintain their guns. Right. When they pull that fir- trigger first time.
1: And I know a lot of instructors do lend out guns. I think if they're doing that, it's imperative they have them sign a release with that type of language. Um, If you give a firearm to somebody that's not safe for whatever reason and and the gun blows up because it's got a squib load in it that you didn't inspect, you could be on the hook for that. It's your firearm and you lent it to them. You, as an instructor, will have a duty to that person to hand them a safe gun. So just if you're going to be lending guns out, obviously make sure they're safe but also get the student to acknowledge that they're responsible before pulling that trigger that the gun is safe.
0: Good advice, sir. i tell you, I've had this happen a couple times to me, but students that bring NFA items to class, and mm-hmm. you know, suppressors, uh, I've only had a couple people that have brought in uh, fully automatic Class Three items for use after class, but when they bring in suppressors and such uh, on their firearms, what's, what's your uh, suggestion on those? Well, I need
1: to, I want to know why a student brought in a suppressor to a concealed carry class. Could you tell, could you tell me, were they actually that's intending to use and carry it with them?
0: That, the, honestly, I believe the student went along and didn't realize that they came off, and they just brought the whole okay. gun with them. Somebody, somebody okay. brought, brought, them, brought in there, and you know, that's where I thought, huh, wonder, wonder you know, where the liability is there, because obviously they don't know what the NFA item is, but do I have any liability as an instructor?
1: generally speaking, no, and at least not under the National Firearms Act and and not from a criminal standpoint, unless you take possession of the gun. Um, And when I refer to gun, I'm referring to suppressor here uh, or silencer as the uh, NFA actually designates it. And we all know that silencers don't exist except in Hollywood. But the way the National Firearms Act worked, first off, the audience should know it's the very first gun law we ever had in this country passed in 1934. It was at one point actually deemed unconstitutional, but they reworked it and it stays on the books. Suppressors are subject to that law, and you have to pay a tax of $200 before the the weapon, the suppressor, is transferred to you. And it takes about 11 months on average for the ATF to approve that. Once that tax is paid, you'll have a receipt called a tax stamp that you have to carry with that uh, suppressor. So if a student is going to bring that to class, and I would have this in my instructions that I would send out to all my students. If you intend to bring any NFA items, you must bring the proper registration paperwork with you. Um, no one else is allowed to possess that at all. It's illegal if it leaves the dominion and control of the actual registered owner. So it's, you have to be very cautious not to let him just kind of pass that thing around because um, if ATF were to find out theoretically in a vacuum, at least, hyper-technically speaking, no one else should be touching that suppressor. And it's difficult for the instructor because if you have to take control of the weapon, if something malfunctions, are you in dominion control of it now, or is the actual owner? And if it's not the owner, and you are in dominion control of it, what we call possession, that's a problem.
0: In big, big trouble if somebody really wants to go along, take the yeah, letter if, of law to you.
1: Yeah, if you're charged with an NFA violation, last I looked at the law, I think it's ten years in federal
0: prison. Oh, that's all. Okay, <laughs>
1: <laughs> do that on your head.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's uh, yeah. That's where, when it comes to gun laws, we want to make sure that. We're we're being the right. I'll tell you tell you one of those things that I I don't overly worry about. But uh, as I'm teach classes across state lines in Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, um, in the tri-state area, there uh, wh- what goes on when I'm transporting uh, firearms, uh, class materials, mm-hmm. things like that across state lines? Um, those three states I know are friendly to firearms, so I. I Never ran into any problems, but if I ever got invited to Illinois, to so where we know that's a little bit more of a difficult state, uh, you know, what's your suggestion on that?
1: Yeah. Well, first, I don't know how friendly Indiana is. They do have a red flag law. Um, but aside from that, um, there is each state has their own laws in transporting firearms. For instance, Ohio's is pretty onerous. If you don't have a concealed handgun license, um, there's certain protocols on how you carry that firearm. It's got to be unloaded. The ammunition has got to be in complete and separate enclosure the gun's got to be in a locked bag box or case what's one uh, um, side note i actually got a call from an attorney today in ohio he's got a client that was charged with carrying a gun in the car the wrong way it's called improper uh, carrying of a firearm in a motor vehicle in ohio and uh, the gun was unloaded there was a loaded magazine in a duffel bag in the trunk of an suv and that was sealed up so complete and separate enclosure existed here it wasn't a loaded firearm And the gun was shut in the glove box and they charged him because they said it's not a box bag or case that the glove box is a compartment. And if it's a compartment, it's got to be only accessible by leaving the vehicle. And I thought to myself, what a bullshit charge to bring on against somebody. You have the gun in the glove box, it's shut and it's not a compartment. People call it glove box, but that kind of stuff happens. So you have to be very, very cautious especially when you don't have a concealed handgun license on how you're transporting the firearm. If it's a long gun, the action has got to be locked open or the gun's got to be disassembled. There's all these different regulations and they're all different across state lines. Mm-hmm. So what the federal, what the federal government did in 1986, you may remember this. I was a little young to really be cognizant of what was going on in Congress at the time. But 1986, I was actually four years old at the time. Uh, they passed what's known as the gun owners or firearm owners protection act. And in that act, they passed something, um, I believe it was called the Safe Passage Law. And it's kinda, it kind of set like a, a baseline for how you would transport guns around the country that states could not be more restrictive than. The idea was is that you don't get caught in like a catch-22, you go in Illinois thinking you're obeying the law and you're not, and they go, ah, oh, gotcha, right? So what that law essentially says that the, gun, the weapon must be unloaded, and two, it's not readily accessible for example, locked and out of reach. And then number three, for vehicles without a trunk, the fire must be locked in the container other than the glove compartment or console of the motor vehicle. So it kind of of laid down this baseline way of carrying a gun that theoretically is supposed to be legal in all 50 states. The problem is each state kind of treats that federal law differently. Some will treat it as a bar to prosecution entirely. Others will treat it as a defense, meaning they'll charge you with a crime and then you have to try to bring that law in as what we call an affirmative defense. There's an example, a great example, your listeners should look up online and read his story. And Rob, maybe you've heard of him, but Brian Aiken. Uh, was moving from Colorado to New Jersey. Not only, it's been a year since I've read the story, but the, the gist of the facts were, he called ahead to New Jersey, asked the Highway Patrol if he had a Glock 19 and it was unloaded and disassembled in the trunk. Is that legal? They said yes. Apparently it was not legal. He gets there, gets pulled over. I think his mom called the police because she was worried about him because he had just gotten divorced and she thought he was suicidal, if I remember correctly. So he gets pulled over. They find the gun. They charge him. He gets convicted. The judge does not let the federal law come in as a defense at all. And he does seven year or gets sentenced to seven years in prison for this. Outrageous. I mean, this guy doesn't have so much as a traffic ticket, from my recollection. So he, he's generally a good person. He eventually does get clemency. and after that, a pardon from Governor Christie, the last Republican governor of that state, but he lost his kids. He lost, you know, years of his life. How much money did he lose? He lost his gun. You know, all these things happened to this guy and this law was supposed to be there to protect him and it didn't really work out that way for him.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's all where it depends on who the prosecution is and also who you get for a defense attorney. Two, two big that's factors right. there. And, uh, right.
1: Well, in in the state law and New Jersey, people always ask me, well, how do I, I got family in New Jersey or Chicago. How do I carry there? You don't, you just don't go there. <laughs> <laughs> That's
0: the same advice I gave somebody last summer when they were going down to uh, Norfolk, uh, uh, military, uh, naval mm-hmm. base there. And, you know, he had everything set up and ready to go. in, in Virginia, but he was visiting family in New Jersey. And so there's just no way mm-hmm. you can do it. I mean, okay. for, if well, you don't live in New Jersey, there's literally like no way to uh transport it
1: mm-hmm. well i want to correct you on something i used to i went to law school virginia and it's actually pronounced Norfolk.
0: so oh, okay. just fyi <laughs> showing my my Southern northern thing. northern accent there <laughs> yeah i got
1: corrected i got corrected very quickly when i moved to the old dominion and i lived down there for three and a half years
0: well, it's, uh, along the same lines as air travel um, a lot of mm-hmm. us uh, firearm instructors, we know the value of having cert guns, uh, blue guns, things like that to teach mm-hmm. classes with. Um, obviously, we know our firearms have got to be in our checked baggage. We have to declare them according to the uh, TSA and the airline uh, guidelines. What about these mm-hmm. inert uh, items that, uh, you know, what, mm-hmm. what would be your suggestion about traveling with those?
1: Uh, well, first off, air travel is really tricky, especially with instructors, because instructors, a lot of times, are not cognizant they have a gun on them, because to them, it's just everyday piece of… It's part, uh, of, part of their know, body.
0: Stuff. It's like a wallet or your EDT, keys in right? pocket.
1: It's, yeah, it's like your cell phone or your pen, right? Uh, you know, I carry pens on me because I'm a lawyer everywhere I go, and I don't even recognize I have pens on me. And I've represented instructors that have been in this situation. They forget it's in their bag. And here's what occurs when that happens, and I think the audience needs to understand this before we, we uh, specifically address your question, is they're going to pull you aside, generally speaking, they're going to put you in a room, they're going to bring in law enforcement, they're going to question you. And depending on the state, they'll treat it differently. Like, I believe in Georgia, if you have a concealed handgun license, they may let you go. Um, it's been a year since I've looked at that. But in Ohio, what they do is they'll, they'll, um, they'll send you on your way, I believe they keep the gun, um, and they'll charge you either with a state offense, I've seen anything from a misdemeanor all the way to a felony. And more recently, we haven't seen state charges. We're actually seeing federal charges. It's known as a notice of violation, which is a misdemeanor or a minor misdemeanor, I believe, in federal court. But you're still going to have to hire an attorney, pay that attorney you know, a few thousand dollars. They'll take care of that. You might have to pay a fine. The gun will be destroyed, so you lose the gun. You'll lose some time out of your day. You'll probably miss your flight. And then about a year later, maybe not that long, you'll get a letter from TSA saying you have to pay them a penalty of $11,000 roughly. And then you'll wow. hire the attorney again, <laughs> pay the attorney, you know, 1,500 to three grand and the attorney, if they're good and they've done it before, will get that reduced to maybe $1,500 depending on the circumstances and facts. So it's an expensive mistake to make. We have to make that very, very clear off, right off the bat. Given the gravity of the ramifications that could occur, it's always been my advice, anything that would resemble a firearm or even come near a firearm to somebody who doesn't know firearms and that might be a TSA agent. You just don't do it. So check the, check the thing. Um, now, should you notify TSA that you have an inert fire or whatever you want to call it, a blue gun or whatever it is? It's probably not unwise to tell them, you know, hey, I don't have a firearm. I have a practice uh, firearm in my bag because you're allowed to check guns. That's not illegal. So I would probably notify them anyhow, just in case it goes through security and doesn't raise any red flags or cause any craziness where you have to report the TSA and explain it to them later on
0: hmm Yeah. What they
1: do when you check it, they'll put like a big sticker in it. It almost looks like a hazmat sticker, um, and then that way TSA knows that there's a firearm there.
0: Right. Question for you on the uh, TSA fine when they go along: Are you allowed traveling between uh, during that time frame that they're deciding on your fine and everything, or are you uh, persona Yeah, granted? yeah.
1: No, no. You're you can travel. It, it's something that most people don't even know exists until they get that letter months after the incident.
0: <laughs> that would that would be the number a, one shock
1: yeah and i think the number one airport for uh forgotten weapons and carry-ons is um i believe it's atlanta if i remember correctly
0: That sounds about right the last uh, report i saw from the tsa um mm-hmm. yeah, yeah you can get
1: on tsa's website and sign up for uh newsletters that come out i think weekly and they do have statistics and all that stuff you can find that information online Um, We've dealt with a lot of these violations over the years and continue to do so. So if anybody has any issues, they can always call us. We actually even generated luggage tags that we're handing out one year at a convention uh, that people could put on their bags in case it happened to them. They had our our information right there.
0: (laughs) There you go. Business opportunity for you. That's good. There you go. (laughs) Hey, let's shift gears a little bit. When it comes to... Modify, uh, having uh, modified firearms. You know, the students modified mm-hmm. it with a you know, fancy trigger. They've put um, different sights on it or changed mm-hmm. the uh, you know, trigger weight for you know, the striker, something along those lines. What, any mm-hmm. concerns with that?
1: I don't personally have any concerns with it. And it's a different analysis if you're asking me uh, in the capacity of training versus the capacity of everyday carry where you might take someone's life. And um, There is a lot of talking heads who have a lot of different opinions on this. Um, so to address your specific question about training, I don't have any concerns with it as long as the proper waivers and assumptions of risks are signed, right? Because if you put in some sort of ghost trigger or whatever you want to call it, that's super light and the guy ends up hurting himself because of it, you know, you just want him to assume that risk because it's his firearm. Uh, I, you know, as long as the instructor is not messing with the gun, uh, generally it's fine. But again, this is where that disclaimer, that waiver and assumption of risk and release uh, is super important because if the instructor is inspecting the student's firearm because it jams, they're like, oh, you need a different trigger because this one's not working right, and they put in a new trigger. And this has happened to me at training before. I go to a facility that's very well known in Ohio, and my custom trigger jobs have malfunctioned, and they'll put in a new trigger. They'll swap it right there. Um, and But I had signed a waiver, which would have language in there saying, I'm responsible for
0: all that. So your advice is get get a good waiver cover you in all these situations. Hire an attorney,
1: get a good waiver. You pay the attorney once. The waiver is going to be good, you know, for multiple, multiple uses in years and years and years. It's worth the investment because if it ends up in court, you want that thing to be airtight.
0: Mm-hmm. Definitely. Because we've worked uh, way too hard to build our business, build our retirement, build our, you know, our our assets, you know, our vehicles, houses, things like that. To have it gone because mm-hmm. of one you know, stupid mistake. That would That's hurt. Right. That would hurt mm-hmm. for sure. All right. Last question for you, but uh, what, from an instructor standpoint, what should we concern ourselves with when it comes to range considerations? And what I'm thinking about is, you know, some of us are lucky enough to have a range literally, you know, next door to us or on the same grounds where we go along and we're teaching. Uh, so we go out; it's a commercial developed range has a nice back backstop to it. Everything mm-hmm. we need. But then there's other ones of us that the closest range could be an hour or two away from us. And we've got mm-hmm. property or, you know, our uncle's got property and says we can go back on the back 40, you know, with cat, as long as the cows aren't out there and go shooting. What, what's your uh, suggestions mm-hmm. when it comes to using those impromptu ranges? Uh,
1: it can be done. It can be done legally. I think there's a lot more legal pitfalls. Um, obviously they're uh, not from a legal standpoint, but just from a safety standpoint without a backdrop that's concerning. Um, from a legal standpoint, um, I'm re- and I've represented homeowners that have called me and said, Hey, my neighbor wants to do a concealed carry class here. Should I let him? I said, absolutely not. Why would you, why would you ever do that? Uh, cause if someone gets hurt, it's be your ass, right? Your homeowner's insurance, if they find out you're doing that might cancel on you. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if someone gets hurt, they could sue you as the homeowner and it just opens you up the liability as a homeowner, um, so if you're the instructor and you own the property, again, I'd be concerned about the insurance on the property if they were to find out that was going on. Um, they may not insure any incidents. They may drop coverage, that sort of thing. Um, so you definitely would want uh, additional insurance that would cover those types of activities. Um, and if you're going to do that, I mean, you're responsible for the student's safety, and especially if it's your property, you're, you're it's imputed that you know the pitfalls of that land. What if a student's walking steps in a hole, breaks her ankle. You could be on the hook for that. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a lot of pitfalls, I think, that need to be understood and, again, documented that the client signs off on. In our waivers, we talk about that. We talk about uneven terrain, gravel, rain conditions, the student waives all the possible potential pitfalls, so to speak, that could happen out on the range.
0: Mm-hmm. And if you're going to be using your own property, probably good to get a lawyer to look over, make sure that you've got the liability mm-hmm. waiver, that you've got you know, the property, the ownership on the property is set up properly. I know one person who actually uh, went along and carved off his range and then created an Mm -hmm. LLC there so that liability wouldn't be on his house, but that was all done with the help of a competent lawyer for it.
1: Right. You, you absolutely could do that. You, you should do that. If you're an instructor, we didn't really uh, get to that, but you should not teach in your individual name. You should form a company and that would protect you even more because they would see the company and not you individually be much more difficult for them to get access to your personal assets.
0: Good advice for our our listeners that are, that are out there. Hey Derek, Mm -hmm. something that's uh, going on uh, next, next week that I thought we'd uh, talk about too is what's going on in Virginia, the uh, gun rights Mm -hmm. uh, rally that is uh, scheduled uh, for next Monday.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. VCDL, the Virginian citizens defense league is their grassroots gun rights organization. I I wasn't loosely involved with them when I lived down there, went to law school down there. Um, but what's going on now right now is that the Democrats have completely taken over. And I shouldn't just say Democrats, but anti-gunners really have completely taken over the government down there. And what's occurred is that they are passing some pretty onerous or trying to onerous gun, gun control laws. I had read one bill, Rob, that said you couldn't have a gun range in Virginia unless it was on government property. I mean, just crazy stuff. Red flag laws, <laughs> bans on semi-automatic firearms, just, just nonsense. And the VCDL has been very, very vocal about this, and they've gotten a lot of traction. I think somewhere in the 90% range of all the counties in Virginia have declared themselves second amendment sanctuaries. Uh, and the governor's already just keeps pushing their buttons. He recently declared a state of emergency at the Capitol grounds and no guns allowed. And in Virginia, you can carry guns in the state house, at least traditionally you could. Uh, so they've banned that, um, and they're continually trying to push this issue. So on the 20th of January, I think this podcast will air right after that. But on the 20th, they do something every year. This is not a new thing for them. It's called Lobby Day. It's where gun owners go down to the state house and they they meet with representatives. Um, but it's become a lot bigger than it normally is. I've heard estimates of upwards of 50,000 people showing up. So if you're in the area, or you can make it down to Richmond, Virginia, to support this cause. I mean, it, it, I just hope you guys are all there. I know this podcast is coming out after it happens, but if you made it there we thank you for it i unfortunately will be at work in vegas at the shot show and cannot make it
0: yep there'll be hopefully a, a really good showing because i think one thing that politicians need to know is they need to know who their constituents are and sometimes mm-hmm. they get caught up i think in party lines and saying yeah who would you know how would anybody go be against this And they jump behind Mm -hmm. something like that until they realize, like, whoa, there's a heck of a lot more people that are concerned about this issue than what I was originally led to believe. And that's where as gun owners, uh, you know, we want to be the vocal, uh, majority out there, make sure they, they know who we are because we're your neighbors, we're your coworkers, we're, you know, we're we're right there next to you in church. We're not the violent part of society that anybody's got to worry about. And and these laws are trying to solve the violent part of it, not solve, you know, the, all the good Mm -hmm.
1: people. I thought it was ironic when the governor announced the state of emergency, he was surrounded by people with guns on them.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: (laughs) So yeah, it is what it is, but we have to keep fighting the fight. It seems exhausting at times, but we have to keep pressing and we have to show up at the polls. That's where we have always done well. And unfortunately, Virginia just wasn't able to do it in the last election, but hopefully they've woken up and they, they get down there and uh, they get to the polls in the next election and they get these people out of office.
0: Exactly, and NFA was signed in 1936. I think you said 1934. 1934, and you can go mm-hmm. back uh, 34. Uh, I'm sure there was some the small ones, but then 68, uh, the Gun Control Act, and then 86. Uh, you know, there was those were all bit, big watershed moments for gun control, mm-hmm. and you can probably go back and point to you know those were times where, for whatever reason, the firearm majority did not get out and get their voices heard. But mm-hmm.
1: well, it's, propi- it's, it's generally precipitated by some sort of emotional event in our country's history. In the 30s, it was the Al Capone St. Valentine's Day Massacre. And then you get into the 60s with the Gun Control Act. It was all the assassinations we had, uh, mm-hmm. MLK, JFK, RFK, all that was going on. Um, the 80s was actually supposed to be a pro-gun bill, but then they snuck in some, some things under the Hughes Amendment at the last minute. Um, But in Virginia now, uh, what's precipitated this is that uh, mass or a no, mass shooting, a uh, active killer situation in Virginia Beach, which is actually where I went to law school. Uh, and Virginia Beach, funny enough, uh, declared itself a Second Amendment sanctuary city, I believe.
0: Yeah, it doesn't necessarily have to make sense. Uh, uh, gun control doesn't, and that's uh, the world we live in, unfortunately.
1: Yeah, and it doesn't work. I mean, the statistics are very clear. I, you know, I teach Second Amendment law at the uh, local law school, and we are just going through the social science of it all. And the, by and large, most studies, they, they, they come out and they, they're just kind of agnostic about, you know, what causes all this, but there's no concrete evidence that gun control works. There's just not. Um, so, you know, it is what it is though.
0: Yep. That's for sure. Well, you've given us a lot of good advice uh, for our listeners to chew on and uh, a great, uh, advertising for uh, contacting our lawyers, but if people want to contact mm-hmm. you, um, and the munitions uh, law group. Uh, what's your uh, website and uh, what do you have going on?
1: Yeah, you can just get on our website at munitionsgroup.com. Again, that's munitions with an S group.com. And uh, you can email us through the website. There's a phone number there. You can fax us if you still use fax. <laughs> um, that's how you can get a hold of us. We have a Facebook page as well, munitions group. You can look us up there. We generally don't respond to um, direct messaging on Facebook uh, because of liability reasons, but you can shoot us a message. Uh, and there'll be an auto response with our, our contact information as well.
0: And then you also have the Munition Group uh, YouTube channel that you mm-hmm. cover different uh, legal topics. Uh, some of them are focused on Ohio. Sometimes there are more national issues, but you come out mm-hmm. what, about once a week with that or? Uh,
1: we try to, you know, I, I, I film a bunch of them at one time and then we release them once a week on Thursdays normally. But we, like I said, we have about 40,000 followers. We're trying to grow that. And all I do really is answer viewer questions. It seems to be that's what people mostly want. So, um, you know, your listeners can go ahead and email us, call us, leave messages. And we put all the questions into a queue and we don't guarantee we'll get to it, but we try to get to as many as we can. Uh, we might skip over a question if we've already addressed it, because if you look at the entire channel, there might be an answer in there somewhere
0: already. Mm -hmm. Well, and you're also current. I know uh, a few times you've went along as Ohio law has changed. uh, You've had special editions where you come out and talked about the changes to Ohio law and what it means Mm -hmm. to the concealed carry holder.
1: Yeah, we, I keep my thumb very close to that. And uh, sometimes I'm down at the state house, helping out with those bills. So, uh, usually we know what's coming down the pike before it actually gets passed. So we, we try to inform our, our viewers as much as we can, as quickly as we can.
0: That's good. Well, that's a wrap for this episode, and we have a few requests for our loyal listeners. If you have any ideas, questions, or feedback, please email us at ftp.concealedcarry.com. At our listeners, Mike and Bob, can attest to how quickly we respond to their questions and ideas uh, for, uh, for podcasts. Visit our sponsors, especially the Firearms Trainers Association at ftaprotect.com check out their instructor insurance. Being a responsible instructor means having instruct, instructor coverage through a, a reputable insurance company. Remember to use promo code FTP10 for 10% off. Go to iTunes, Google Play, and rate our podcast and leave us a review. Share this episode on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter and encourage others to listen and subscribe. Remember the good information you're getting from our channel and if you don't spread the word... Other instructors will not have this information to be able to use. Remember, we bring you this podcast to support the industry, the Second Amendment, and most importantly, every firearm instructor in America that dedicates time and energy into making gun owners more knowledgeable. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. And stay safe, everyone.